So then we, we end uh, verse 24. Once the crowd realized that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into the boats. Again, they went from Tiberias in the boats up to Bethsaida in the boats. Then they went just a little further and they went up to Capernaum in search of Jesus. That's a good phrase, in search of Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, very truly I tell you, you're looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Don't work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they asked him, well, what must we do to do the works God requires? Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe, believe in the one he has sent. So they asked him, well, what sign are you going to give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate manna in the wilderness, as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. It's almost like they're suggesting the sign, right? Hey, you know what would be a cool sign? A little bit more bread. <laughs> he give us a little something, something like that, and I think our belief will start to really percolate. Jesus said to them, very truly I tell you, it's not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it's my father who gives you the bread from heaven. For the bread from heaven is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. And this is just many in a series of misunderstandings of Jesus and his audience. Whether it be Nicodemus, wow, I gotta crawl up inside my mom, what is that? Uh, the woman at the well, well, you know, this water that, I don't know, it's kind of like a, a camelback backpack that I'll always be refreshed by. Uh, give me that kind of water that's going on here. And, and now, of course, we have this bread misconception that's going on. By the way, bread in, in our New Testament is just another way of saying all nourishment. It's the way that anybody in the first century would have said kind of food that is nourishing to the soul. The staples of life. The things on which you really need to depend that you need for living. And, and bread would be just the catch-all phrase for, for that idea. And, 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 and of course, you're going to want that. So he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Well, I'm sorry. So in verse 34, sir, they said, always give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, and of the I am with a completion to it, like I am the gate, I am the good shepherd, I am the light of the world. Uh, there are seven of those main phrases in the gospel of John. And this is the first one. Now, we just read last week, Jesus walking on the water, and he's like, don't be afraid, I am. Uh, that's a, a pretty intense reference. It's an ontological reference of his being and his identity with God himself. But here, he's now helping us to understand the fullness of who he is, the fullness of his work for us, the fullness of his love by these series of I am metaphors. First of this, here it is. I am the bread of life. Hallelujah. And that's the title of today's sermon, the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. And whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me and still you do not believe. 
All those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of those he has given me. But I will raise them up on the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son of Man and believes in Him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. Keep your finger there for just one second. We're not going to another page, by the way. But but I want you to see that phrase. Shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day. Because that will be repeated right near the end of this sermon that Jesus is giving us here. Uh, and and it will be equated with something so much more controversial later on. So it's, it's helpful to remember that the fullness of this phrase is tied to looking to the Son and believing in Him. And when that happens, you shall have eternal life. And I will raise them up at the last day, Jesus says. At this news, no, at this, the Jews there began to grumble about Him. Because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. It's, I, I don't even know if this is maybe even a, a bit of a, a fun thing that John is having. Because it were, was also the Jews that grumbled about bread in the wilderness. About the very bread that they're talking about. And it's interesting that if the bread is not just the right way, just the right uh, conditions for them. How quickly it is that grumbling can begin in any seeker's heart. At this, the Jews began to grumble about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I came down from heaven? By the way, and we'll, we'll talk about this more in the next couple sermons. But anyone who says the things that Jesus is saying, and it's not the case, has got to be a whack job. So... There's one of two options as we continue to behold and consider Jesus. Either he really is the son of God, the savior of the world, the ultimate giver of love who loves you and redeems you, or he is cuckoo, cuckoo. It's one or the other. Now, I'm fully in this camp over here, but... Don't have some sort of a weak sauce consideration of Jesus where it's like, well, I don't know about that. I couldn't say he's that. So I'm just going to call him a good moral teacher. I'll just go with that. A very wise prophet. Of course. What in the world, wise prophet? You wouldn't say that about someone who says, I was in heaven and I came down to earth. Just like the bread that came down in the Exodus during the time of the wanderings in the wilderness. I am that very bread from heaven, and I am the Son of God himself. Right? Oh, good moral teacher, get off of that. What in the world? Pick a side. Be courageous enough to actually recognize that Jesus has got to be one or the other, and, and stop trying to kind of have it both ways so that you can feel good about yourself, but yet not have to go all in on who he really is. Stop grumbling among yourselves, Jesus answered. No one can come to me. Unless the Father who sent me draws them, and I will raise them up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard the Father and learned from him comes to me. 
No one has seen the Father except the one who is from God. Only he has seen the Father. Very truly, I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate manna in the wilderness and they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. He's, he's not letting you off the hook if you want to say good moral teacher. He cannot say I am coming down from heaven more frequently in such a densely packed uh, lesson that he gives. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Then the Jews began to argue sharply amongst themselves. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Again, in their confusion, maybe they're just really, really hungry. Hungry, hangry, confused at this moment. Could cannibalism actually be on the table right here? Right? I mean, there, there's a, a bit of a kind of an off perception. Jesus said to them, very truly, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the son of God and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh. Now look at this phrase because it's where your finger maybe was a moment ago. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise them up at the last day. Notice the parallel to those exact same words that we're all about looking to the son and believing in him. We'll have eternal life and I'll raise him up at the last day. Moving on to verse 55. For my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in them. Just as the living father sent me and I live because of the father. So the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna. They died. But whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. He said this while teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. Wow. This is by far the most provocative, explosive, divisive passage in all of the Gospel of John. Uh, we're going to look at some of it from a devotional standpoint today. Tuesday we'll have a deeper teaching on some of the more controversial aspects of it. But, but for today, right now, I want to focus in on two of the things that Jesus talks about. The first of which is he keeps talking about life. Life. That, that we are to, to have this life uh, in us. And my first point is, and it's an interesting point for those of us who live in Virginia Beach. Live the life. I don't know if you know that or not, but if you live in Virginia Beach... Your tourism department took all of your tax money, gave it to an advertising firm, and they came up with this to help you stay in Virginia Beach. And so that when uh, people uh, retire from the military, perhaps in 18 months, they'll stay in Virginia Beach. <laughs> because it's here where they can live the life. And the, the Greeks had two words for life. That were rather distinct from one another. That we end up with only one word. Uh, and both of those words are, are used in our New Testament. The, the one word for life. That has to do with like our biological existence. Is bios. Or bios. So bios. Where we get biology of course. Uh, from that. 
Uh, for, for example, there are, there are um, some, some passages that, that speak of that, like, um, you know, the widow, when Jesus was contemplating her in Luke 21, and as he looked intently at her, he said to everyone, you know, everybody else gave out of their wealth, but she gave all that she had to live on. And there he used the word bios, that this was her basics. These were the staples. This was the hand-to-mouth, paycheck-to-paycheck existence that really was her. Now, that's bios. That's this kind of, man, let me just survive. But the other word for life is zoe. And we get zoological, other, other words from that. But zoe. And, and zoe is not about surviving, but thriving. Zoe is about life to the full. Lot, lot, I mean, the, the very thing that Jesus gives us. Uh, zoe is, is this kind of beautiful concept of, of, of having meaning in your life and energy and purpose and significance, exhilaration, joy. It's everything that makes life worth living. It's the zest of life. It's la dolce vita. It's maybe not la vida loca, but, but, it's, but it's that kind of like, yes, grab, grab life by, by, by all that, that, that you have. Um, and, and that's this idea of life. But what's interesting is when the Bible talks about that concept of life, it also says, but small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to Zoe, that leads to life. And only a few are going to find it. On this other side of, of things, of, of just bios or bios type life, it is, it is interesting that some of the things that we go after that we think are going to be so enriching and fulfilling and, and really speak to our soul and give us the fulfilling life that we've always wanted, the Bible describes as mere bios. For example, in 1 John chapter 2, it says, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of Life comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires are going to pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. The, the first use of, of life there is the, the pride of life, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh. All of that, bios. That's the, the Bible just kind of just relegates it to that idea of just surviving. You know, that's picking up the next piece of manna, taking another bite out of the loaf, and having enough calories to get on for another day. But that's what the world actually is trying to tell you is really what you want, right? And that's the conforming to the world that we just uh, heard from. But what's interesting is, but whoever does the will of God, in that very same passage, zoe, right? or Zao there, lives forever. It's a massive con contrast of life and life when you can kind of peel it back and, and see how the Bible really considers it. You know, even more frightening for us, I think, is the seed that fell among the thorns in the parable that Jesus tells us in Luke 8. It stands for those who hear the word of God, but they go on their way, but they get choked out by life's 
worries, riches, and pleasures. Bios. You hear the word, you grab onto the word, you begin to grow in the word, but then the world and its worries, riches, and pleasures constrain you merely to bios. And you know what it says there? And you never grow up. You're, you're, you're left in a state of immaturity at best, which, which is really you know, quite, quite a frightening concept. But for us, what Jesus wants to give you is this beautiful concept of, of zoe, this beautiful concept of life in all of its enriching avenues and, and facets that all come together in him. And it is all expressed in our ability to live this life in Him. And praise, you know, I, I think that for so long I, I thought I was living the life. 2.4 kids, the Volvo, the company car, the you know, beautiful house in the suburb, all of those things that the American dream keeps feeding into us that that's, that's the life that you want. That's life, that's living. Wow, how, how far that is from, from anything, anything close to truly living. I like what Henry David Thoreau said even about all of those distractions. He's the guy who ran out to the woods. He wrote the book Walden or Life in the Woods was the original title. And he said, you know, I wished to live deliberately to see if I could learn what life had to teach rather than when I came to die to discover that I had never lived. I wanted to live deep and suck out all the marrow of life. That's where that phrase comes from. But that's what Jesus wants for you. He wants you to have life to the full. He wants you to have a life where you break open the bones and suck out the marrow of life. That kind of gives me a little PTSD because growing up in a Lithuanian family and you'd brace yourself when you went out to dinner and the chicken was being served because I knew what my grandma and grandpa were going to do. I was like, I knew it was coming. I was like, oh, they... Got all the meat off the bone, and they're not done. There's one more step in this meal. Is anybody from my high school class in this restaurant right now? They are. Oh, no. <laughs> that was living. But who doesn't want that? Who wants to just mark another day? Who wants to just breathe for another day? Right? We, we want to live lives with so much more. And, and yet the, the world may think, wow, but you, know, but you went kayaking today. And, and you were able to you know, be able to behold a beautiful sunset. To, you know, even all of those things. And I do all those things. And I think I do like that stuff like pretty well. I'm pretty well recreated in that sense. But... But you know what? All of that I always did. I did that way before I was in Jesus. But all of that now is in even all of those kind of splendid, sublime activities. Even that is in a beautiful perspective now. Because before I did it without values guiding why I did those things. Without an overarching purpose for why am I even here? What is my mission of why I'm even on this earth? My goodness, when I came into Jesus, 
all of that suddenly flourished into full bloom. Praise God. Praise God that's the case. And I finally knew, finally knew what it really meant to live life. To really live life. To make a difference in other people's lives. I love what the Apostle Paul says. He was so concerned about the Thessalonian church. I think it's 1 Thessalonians 3.8. Where he's like, and then I heard that you, the church, were thriving and doing well. And then he said about him and Timothy and Silas. And he says, and now we really live. Like, that's what gets Paul going. He's like, he hears that the saints are solid. He hears that the gospel is making greater inroads throughout the region of, of Macedonia through Thessalonica. Now I really live. Yes, we've got it going on. But it's the same thing, isn't it, for any of us? We, we end up being put in the right place by God at just the right time to open our mouth. Someone responds to the gospel. Their eyes seem to light up. You come home dancing a jig, right? I mean, there's nothing that gets you. You're like, let me tell you, like, whoa, like what God used me for today. Now I really live. To be there just the right time where the brother or sister is just deeply distraught and you're able to bring a word of encouragement and, and be a sob to their soul, being a tool of Jesus Christ, tool in a good sense. To, I mean, to have those opportunities, like, now I really live. There's something about the intersection of the supernatural and the natural and you being a part of that. Or to be there in a Bible study with a seeker and you just kind of put these words in front of them and the cosmic light bulb goes off over their head. The scales fall from their eyes. Suddenly they get it. And you're like, my, my goodness, when you have a front row seat to that, now I really live. Yeah, sunrise, schmunrise, sure. It's great and it's cool and it's creation and I love God and all of that. But, oh my goodness, to, to really be in the, in the place, to be in the room where it happens, to be there as, as God is working and to somehow have an observation point that is, is there for all of that. Now I really live. That's the life that, that God has worked out through Jesus, through his sacrifice, through his love for us. Can, can you skip um, all the way through? There's a movie and stuff I'm not going to show. And my second point here is you are what you eat. Now, what did this crowd want? They wanted some manna. They wanted some loaves of bread. They wanted another bite. It's interesting that what you really desire to consume begins to inform your identity. And for them, they were myopic, short-sighted, small-minded people that were kind of just brute beasts of sort that just give me food, me want eat. You make calorie, me consume. Right? I mean, that's it. That's all that they got. Like, and Jesus is like, come on. You don't want just that. That's, that's not what you want. That's not what you want to consume. And today, yes, we have an easy time of grabbing bread or whatever it is that you want. Too easy of a time, obviously, to have any sort of a, a nourishment. But, but what Jesus is saying here, when he talks about what it is to, to really, really consume... Is he saying, consume me. Consume me. Really give me that place in your life that that's what you run after. That's what you want in your life. That's what you want to really inform you and to just kind of permeate all through everything that you do. This idea of, of bread and 
and the, the way that this crowd is so shallow, it speaks to something that was written almost like the exact same time as this gospel. Uh, the gospel was written in the late first century, and at the same time was a Roman poet whose name was Juvenal. And Juvenal wrote in a really a scathing condemnation of what had happened to society all around here, all around the Roman Empire, is that where the Romans used to be so virtuous and they aspired to living a life of meaning, they have now gone from this idea of a republic with honor to an empire where they can be so easily swayed by the emperor who gives them, and this is where the phrase comes from, bread and circuses. Maybe you've never heard that phrase. But it, but it comes from, from, from this document of, of the exact same time as the writing of John. And, and what Juvenal was saying is, is that an emperor could win over the people and kind of distract them from the deeper things of life and distract them even from the emperor's incompetence by just giving them bread or giving them games in the circus. Right, the Circus Maximus was where the gladiatorial games were. It's where the, uh, the, the uh, chariot races were. It's, it's where all of the horrific bloodlust sports were, were all performed. Again, why? To amuse the people away from what matters. And there was a famous book that came out about 40 years ago, 30 years ago now. We are amusing ourselves to death. It was a very important book. And it, it actually keyed off of what Juvenal was writing in 95 AD, and that phrase of bread and circuses, and what a dangerous thing it is when a people begin to go after something so shallow and immediate gratification, instead of really contemplating what life is all about, really contemplating what should be the trajectory of my life, really contemplating truth in all of its permutations and how it applies to me. And what the, the frightening aspect was that uh, the, 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 the book um, Amusing Ourselves Came to Death, Amusing Ourselves to Death, came to the conclusion was that this has been ramped up to a massive degree. And what is now amusing us to death, what is now our bread and circus, what is now the thing that satisfies us, rather than transcendent meaning and truth, we are content with the immediate gratification of a like, of a mildly amusing television show, of a time in front of a screen that can distract you from the significant things that really await you in life. And ra rather than contemplate kind of the weightier matters, instead, we're happy with just getting our news from Facebook, from hearing provocateurs rant about Zion Williamson, and how could he ever end up in New Orleans? You can say a little prayer that he could go to the Knicks, by the way, just while we're here. On that. <laughs> or, or even polarized newscasts that simply want to make clickbait headlines that will get you to go not to a long-form news story or, God forbid, an op-ed piece, but rather to a soundbite. Yeah. And all of these things begin to pile up. And all these things begin to be the nourishment that somehow satisfies us. And at the end of the day, oh, there's so much media input. How can I find time or weed through it all to get to truth and Jesus and the weightier things? 
And Jesus is saying, bread and circuses, bread, don't go after this bread that spoils. My goodness, what, what, what good is that? You know, how about the, there are mornings where this Bible, this is my Bible for quiet times this year, where I sit in the corner, put on the light, nice and early in the morning, and I, and I read this word, and I come away, and my goodness, the nourishment that I get from consuming the word of God, from consuming Jesus. My goodness, I, there's not a day that, come, that I come away from that saying, oh, that was a waste. But there are other days, however, where I sit down with the intention of this, but a little ding goes off, and, and suddenly I grab that thing and look at an email, look at a text message. Oh, look, the text message has a YouTube video. Ah, isn't that funny? Oh, look at what's on the sidebar here. Oh, let me watch that. And, and suddenly, the time that was allotted for me to, to, to read the Word of God has now been spent doing absolutely the most shallow things that I could ever imagine. And I don't come away from that eager to call somebody and say, Oh, man, you, you, you need to hear what text I read. You need to see what an Instagram post I just saw. You, you need to experience the YouTube video feed that I just experienced. No, I've never said that. What is that? That's amusing me to death. It is amusing me. To, to muse is to be inspired. To amuse, in the Greek, is to undo all inspiration. Amusements have no significance by very definition. And we, we need to take a hard look. We need to take a hard look about whether we really do want to be fed in our souls by Jesus. And Jesus says, here's how you do it. He says in verse 40, here's how you feed on me. Because later he'll say, my food, my, my flesh is real blood, my, my uh, blood is real drink. And whoever consumes it has eternal life and I will raise him up at the last day. The parallel to that is verse 40. For my father's will is that everyone who looks to the son of and believes in him shall have eternal life and I will raise him up at the last day. It's not just look like, oh, look at that. He uses the word look a couple other times, see a couple other times in this passage. And the word that he uses is orao. Here he uses theorao. It is a deeper idea. As a matter of fact, it's the same word that is used when Jesus is contemplating the widow with her might that I just referenced earlier in Luke 21. When he's contemplating that widow with her might and sees everybody else, contemplates everybody else, putting it out of their wealth. But for her, he really beholds her. He really considers her. It's almost like the, the theory of the, theorao is the word. It's almost like the theory is being synthesized as he beholds her and realizes, wow, that's generosity. Right? But we're being called to behold Jesus. We're not just to take a glancing look, but to really take a look at Jesus. To consider deeply Jesus. Consider not only his very character, his very identity, but also then who he is for you. And what he is that he's come for you. And not only that, but as you begin to behold him and astounded by him, the miracles, the love, the compassion, the giving, the sacrifice, the boldness. But as all of this begins to kind of 
continue to come in full view of you, it's also then to come to this place that Jesus desires. That you believe. That you live your life with faith. You live your life with trust. You live your life as oddballs on this earth. As those that put your full on 100% trust in Jesus and nothing else. My goodness, when you do that, all bets are off. When you do that, that's depth of soul. When you do that, you are metaphorically breaking open that chicken bone after you've taken everything else. And you are sucking deeply from the marrow of life. When you live your life in faith and trust in Jesus, when, when you do that, you realize that that's the only hope for all. That's the only meaning for all. That's the gravitas that defines us all. But on top of all of that, when you consume him, you are what you eat. And there's one other thing that I want to end with here. He actually says, eat my flesh, drink my blood. I get that he's not saying it literally. But the fact that he would even lay that out there, and the fact that even when he institutes, ordinates the Lord's Supper, he says, this is my body, this is my blood, this is given for you. What he is saying is extraordinary. Because... Luke 17, I'm, I'm sorry, uh, Leviticus 17 tells us the life of a creature is in its blood. And even when you bring that creature to the temple of God for sacrifice, you may eat its body, but no way, no how, are you going to even consider drinking its blood. Why? Because it's too sacred, too holy. And no one... No one has that kind of chops. No one has that street cred that you could cross that line of holiness. You are not that holy that you could ever consume the blood of an animal. Because that's the life of the animal. Life is so sacred in God's eyes. And that was the ordinance of the Old Testament. Now Jesus is saying, not only do you have the privilege of a priest, that is to eat the sacrifice that has been put before the altar. And I get it's symbolic. But... On top of that, not only do you have the backstage pass and all the rights therewith of a priest, but you also now are being told that you, unlike any other priest in the Old Testament, holy, distinguished, astounding, held in honor by all of the people that are here, but you transcend that and that you can drink the blood. That's how holy you are. That's how important the fact that the Son of God will be lifted up and draw all men to Him. That that sacrifice is going to count for something. That that trust in Him, that transforming new life that is given to you through Him. That being born again of water and spirit that confused Nicodemus gives you a new identity. When you behold Him, you believe in Him, you're reborn in Him. And when you are, your identity is such that you are so holy that He can say to you, Eat the sacrifice. And rather than just leave the blood, go ahead and consume the blood too. Wow. Again, please understand, it's, it's symbolic, but there's something really important about the, even the symbol, symbolism there. That that is saying who you really are. That's who you really are. You are that holy if you are in Christ. That precious. That consecrated. That significant. You walk this earth with chops that you can't even begin to appreciate. Why cash it all in for amusement? Why cash it all in to make your life a life where you just simply consume immediate gratification? Instant gratification. Instant grat. Instant 
Graham. You want that to be the great accomplishment on your deathbed? You want that to be your legacy? You want that to be what your kids see in you? You want that to be the trajectory of the rest of your family? You want that video game escapism? You want that Facebook addiction? You want that news soundbite? You want all of that to fill your life? Let's realize who we are. You are what you eat. You already, because you've consumed Christ, are rare indeed. And let me give you a last little life to the full challenge here. Go unplugged one day this week. Take the bread that spoils and put it aside. Right now you're saying, oh yeah, that's good. But you know what? In seven, eight, nine seconds, you're oh no. You know what that means? Oh, you know what else that means? Oh, you know what else that means? But here's what I want as as we do this. And I, I really would like us to be serious about this. We have a chance to get deep. We have a chance to know, not just kind of be satisfied by the shallow. We have a chance to deeply contemplate truth and Jesus. It, I, would, I would encourage you to do this as a family one day this week. And a disturbance rose in the force. <laughs> no screens for a day. That means no TV. No Hulu. That counts as TV. But it's over the internet. No screens. I, I get if you've got to do a banking transaction, do the banking transaction. But you know what? Why not even try to like do a little extra for Jesus and do that banking transaction at the bank where you could actually run into a human being? <laughs> but what about how I read my Bible? I think you could find a Bible Bible. But pick a day. But also, if you're going to do this and put it on your family and you're not going to give them something deeper, richer, better bread... Well, then don't put it on your family, honestly, because then all you'll be is a parent who is just simply embittering your children. Make this an awesome day that you choose, an awesome day, whereas together as a family, you do things together. You have a more enriching life. You have more special connections. You have a a deeper, not a shallow existence uh, together, and that you spend time in the word of God and you contemplate Jesus through that. We have life to the full. Let's not cash it in the bread that spoils. Jesus is the bread that comes from heaven, the bread of life, and you are, you are those that have the privilege of consuming nothing less. Amen. We'll break the fellowship.